Alright, this is Genesis um, 8.20 through 9.7. Then Noah built an an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of his man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, um, seed time and harvest and cold and heat and summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I give you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. For every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image, and you be fruitful and multiply, increase on the earth and multiply in it. That's all. Hopefully David can explain that because I was a little confused. (laughs) Thanks, Sam. Let's go ahead and continue on in verse 8 then. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is with you, with the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the field with you, as many as came out of the ark... It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you. For all future generations, I have set my bow in the clouds, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. Um, Thank you that your word is true and that your word does not return void, but that we can trust in it and it speaks to us. It tells us truth about you and it tells us truth about ourselves too. Thank you that we have the opportunity now uh, to look at your word, to examine what you have done, that we might come to know you more closely, more intimately, that we might walk with you, 
And Lord, that we may have the life that you give. In your name, amen. Part of the reason why I wanted to read through the entire passage that we're covering today, all three chapters of it, is because I think it's really important for us not to just talk about the Word, but to actually read the Word together. And so part of the goal is, as we're going through the book of Genesis, is that we would actually read the entire book of Genesis as a congregation together. Um, Because it's important that the truth that we take, that we leave here, is coming from the Word of God, and not just from me. Because if you were just listening to me, We'd all be in a world of hurt. Um, But instead, it's the truth of God's word, which has authority and power. Um, Every year around Christmas time, my wife and I tend to enjoy a couple Hallmark movies. Um, I guess they'd be considered a guilty pleasure. Um, But if you've ever seen one, you've seen them all. Um, (laughs) They follow the same pattern. And if you haven't seen any, let me go ahead and lay out this pattern for you now. So... You know what to expect if you ever do watch, or you can never need to watch because now you'll know the pattern. So it starts out, there is a successful businesswoman. She is single. Typically, she lives in a large city. She owns her own business, and she is just too busy for love. Something, something catastrophic or a holiday, will bring her back home to see her family where the local family business is failing. And... um, she realizes that she temporarily will need to stay and to help the family keep the business going. As she stays, she encounters an attractive young man whose small-town ideals tend to clash with her big city plans for this family business. Most often, this man is a widower with a single child, with a child or two children, or sometimes he's just single and has a dog. Um, any of those will work. Um, As they begin to work together, they develop some animosity over their differences, but eventually some feelings begin to come to the surface until a misunderstanding causes them to question these feelings that they thought they had for one another. And then, at some big event, which is meant to save the family's business, they will realize that they belong together, and it was all a misunderstanding all along. The woman will move back home to run the family business, and they will get married and live happily ever after. That's about every Hallmark movie. And if you want it to be a Hallmark Christmas movie, just have it set in December, add snow, Christmas cookies, um, a Christmas tree farm, and lights, and it'll be good. Um, These stories follow certain patterns because they pull on something within us that we enjoy watching for some reason. And I still can't, I I don't know what it is. But it is this idea that things can be perfect, that it all works out, that um, love is really like a fairy tale, but it's set in modern times. And sometimes the characters will even have names that reflect back on fairy tales. Um, It speaks to something within the human heart desiring of love, and Hallmark has found a pattern that works, and they've stuck to it. Because they've recognized that there's something inside of us. As we look throughout the book of Genesis, we're going to also see some patterns emerge Uh, We're going to see continually, time after time, as we saw with Abel, that the younger brother is um, honored above the older brother. We'll encounter several women who are unable to get pregnant, and then through a miraculous act of God, they conceive. We'll also see, time and time again, God making covenants with men of faith. 
This pattern that we see throughout the book of Genesis tells us something about the character of God and about the nature of man. Um, Over and over again, we see God working. We see him moving in and amongst sinful men, and we begin to understand a little bit about the character of God. We're now really at like the third story. We have Adam and Eve and their relationship with God, and then Cain and Abel, and now we're getting into the story of Noah, and we're beginning to see some patterns emerge. And we'll see these as we look throughout the story of the flood and what happens after the flood. Um, To start out, um, we're going to look at the flood and exactly what was God doing through the flood. The first thing is that we see God is the judge of sinful man. The character that we realize of the men in the beginning of Genesis chapter 6, verses 9 um, in, in verse 11 specifically, we see that man was corrupt. So much so that God, repeated, or God repeats it three times. In verses 11 and 12, it says that the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and it was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way. He's communicating something through repetition. This is what Hebrew does. The language, it will repeat things to signify the importance. Last week, if you remember, we saw that the heart of man, his intentions, was turned only towards evil always. And now, mankind is corrupt. They are corrupting the earth. The word here for corrupt actually is the same word as destroy. And in just a few, in the next verse, God says, I will destroy them with the earth. It is the exact same concept, the idea. What man is doing is they are corrupting, they are destroying the earth that God gave them and placed them. We talked about it this morning. He placed them on the earth to cultivate it and to keep it, to work it. And instead, they're destroying it. They're doing the exact opposite. They are rebelling against their maker, their creator. And so God says, if you are destroying the works that I have made, then I'm going to destroy you. It's harsh. It sounds very harsh. So is God just? Is God just in pronouncing judgment on sinful man and wiping them all except for those on the ark, off the face of the earth. Yes. Yes, he is just. He is just because he's the creator of everything. He is the creator of them. Um, And he owns everything as its creator. And so everything that we see on this earth, everything that they saw, everything that they experienced, belonged to God. Even man themselves owe their very existence to God. And man is rebelling against their maker. It would be the equivalent if you got a job at a greenhouse, and your job was to help these plants grow and to eventually sell them. But instead of going into the greenhouse every day and watering the plants, you decide every day you're going to go in and set fire to 50 of them. And just over the process of time, you're going to keep burning the plants until there's none left. You probably wouldn't last more than a day. You might not last more than a few hours. You would get fired. Because it is just. That is the right thing. You are not doing what you were hired to do. And mankind here is not doing what they were created to do. They were created to cultivate, to keep, to honor, and to worship God, to serve Him through their stewardship of the earth. 
And instead, they're focused only on themselves. And they are corrupting the earth and everything that is in it. So we see at the beginning that God is the judge of sinful man. We saw this when he judged Adam and Eve after the fall, and we saw it again when he shows up to talk to Cain after he murders his brother, that God is the judge of sinful man. But God also rescues his people. We encounter this man, Noah, and Noah takes center stage, or I guess kind of side stage next to God. God's really the one that's doing everything. And Noah is the one that has found favor in the eyes of God. So who is Noah? We talked about him just briefly last week. But we learned three things right away about Noah. Noah was a righteous man. He's righteous. A righteousness that is attainable only by faith. We'll see this again, another pattern, that God declares men who exhibit faith in him to be righteous throughout the book of Genesis. And Noah is declared right away as a righteous man, yet we know that he's also a sinful man. He's a son of Adam. He's corrupt and sinful by nature, but yet by his faith, God declares him to be righteous. It also says that he was blameless in his generation. It doesn't mean that he was without sin, but what it means is that no one in his generation could bring fault against him. That he was whole and complete. And so as those in his generation looked at him, it would be like Daniel when they tried to bring accusations against him and the only thing they could find was that he prayed to his God more than what they thought was proper. Noah was blameless in his generation. He was without fault. His generation could not find fault among him. And finally, we see that he walked with God. We talked about last week what it means to walk with God. That it is a close and intimate relationship. That Noah experienced this relationship with God. And we'll begin to see what this walk looks like for Noah. So, how did Noah, as we saw last week in verse 8, it says that Noah was favored by God. How did Noah come about to obtain favor? I would like to have God's favor too. I'd like to walk with God. So how did Noah do it? By grace. He didn't deserve it. As a sinful man, he did not deserve a relationship with God. He did not deserve to be called righteous by God. Nothing of his own accord merited any favor from God. In fact, all of us, when we are born, we forfeit the right to God's favor. We forfeit the right to his grace. Sometimes grace will be called unmerited favor, which can carry the idea that um, we're kind of neutral. We haven't done anything to earn grace, but we haven't done anything to give it away either. We're just like in the middle. We're okay people, which is what we like to think about ourselves, or maybe we're a little bit better than okay because we're better than Joe or Sam or Billy or whoever else that we compare ourselves to. But when each of us sin, we forfeit our right to any relationship with God. We give that up and we choose our own way. And that's what Noah had done. But God, in his grace, invited Noah into a relationship. Something that Noah didn't deserve. 
So in God's grace, even though he didn't have to, as is often the case with us, he extends his hand and invites Noah, come, walk with me, share in a relationship with me. And God looks on Noah with favor. So what now is this favor? What does it mean to have the favor of God in your life? Sometimes you might see athletes, after they make a field goal, point to the sky, or they'll say, oh, God was just really with me, I just have the favor. Somebody, after they get a promotion, or they have a really great day, they're just like, "Mm, I've got the favor of God in my life. And we can have this idea that the favor of God is ease and comfort in this world. If favor with God is ease and comfort in this world, tell that to Noah. Because his life was not a life of ease and comfort. If we were to say anybody had, according to our standards, the favor of God, it would have been Methuselah. The guy lived 969 years. He had many sons and daughters, lived an extremely long life. That's what we think of when we think of, that would be great. But Noah, his story's a little bit different. Imagine for a second that you're in his shoes. Everybody that you know, say for your three sons, your three daughters-in-law, and your wife, die. You become, before that, the ridicule of people as God calls you to build this boat, this ark, without any idea of what's coming or what's happening. And so for decades, you labor without any idea what the fruit of your labor is going to be, seemingly pointless. And then for over a year, you get to live with the same seven people and these stinky animals on a ship. And I hope you don't get seasick because you're there for a long time. I mean, people freak out over cruises that get stuck out at sea for like an extra couple hours. Over a year. Noah was on this boat caring for these animals. According to our standards, this isn't the favor of God. But our idea of what the favor of God is, is more based on our culture and what success in our culture is than what God has to say about his favor. The favor of God is a relationship with him. It's walking with him. And for Noah, he got to walk with God as God began the process of recreating the earth, of wiping out the sin and starting over from scratch. And it wasn't an easy journey, and sometimes that's the case in our life. That if we walk with God, that doesn't mean that everything is going to be easy. And that is not what we're striving for. But the promise is that as we go through the difficult, God's there with us. And in fact, he might even lead us into that which we think is difficult for us because he knows it's what's best for us. He knows it's going to grow us. It's going to draw us closer to him. So instead of asking the question and wondering where is God when all of these terrible things are happening in your life? Where is God when my father passed away far sooner than I was ready? Where is God when I lost my job? You have the favor of God if you walk with God, if you have a relationship with him.
It's a journey. It's a process. And the more we walk with Him, the closer we come to Him, the closer He comes to us. The only way to obtain this favor is through faith. We saw that in Hebrews where it says that without faith it is impossible to please God. But yet we also see in James that as we draw near to God, He draws near to us. So whenever we think and we see the favor of God throughout Scripture and we look for it in our lives, let's recognize that it's not worldly success. It is not ease. It is not comfort. It is joy unspeakable and full of glory because you are walking with God through life and through eternity. That it doesn't stop at death. So death is not the worst thing that can happen because it is only the beginning of this deeper walk with your Creator. God of His own grace provided Noah with His opportunity to step close. It was by His grace and then we see through Noah's faith. Um, We get a picture of Noah's faith when God says, go and build this ginormous ark. And then... In chapter 6, verses 22, we read that Noah did this. He did all that God commanded of him. And then in 7, verse 1, the Lord says to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. God saw Noah's righteousness by his faith. And it wasn't just a faith that says, God, I believe you exist, but it was a faith that was willing to step out and take a risk. It was a faith that was willing to follow God when he didn't see the end. He didn't know what was going to happen. And sometimes God is going to call us to do the same. He's going to call us to step out. He'll call us to walk somewhere where we are uncomfortable. To make a decision that does not line up with your five-year, ten-year plan of success. Because God has something better and far more glorious for you. So let me challenge you that as you walk with God, when he calls you to step out, step out, it might be something as simple as going and sharing your faith in two weeks with Revive. It's a great opportunity to step out in faith and to experience something that's uncomfortable, but yet you know that God has called us to do that, that we've been called to go and make disciples. Or maybe to start meeting with somebody and walking through a book of the Bible with them and pouring yourself into their lives to teach them what God has to say to them. Even though it's going to cost you your time, it's going to cost you your comfort, it might even cost you money. But if God calls you to do it, walk with Him. Step out in faith. Are you walking with God? When He calls you, do you go? Or do you wait until He forces your hand and you start to see the water coming and you scramble to build an ark because you know judgment is coming? God rescues Noah and his family by grace through faith. This is a pattern that we see throughout Scripture that speaks to God. Now that we've seen the story of the flood and as God rescues Noah, he is the rescuer of his people. And we, we saw as we read through the passage that Noah got on the ark and for 150 days the waters prevailed over the earth. When it says it's prevailed, it's actually the idea of in battle, two armies going against each other and one prevailing over the other, that the waters came up against the mountains and the waters won. 
And now that the waters have stopped in the post-flood, God begins a process of recreating. If you remember when we looked at the story of creation, one of the first things that God does is he separates the waters above from the waters below. And when the flood comes on the earth, the way that the author of Genesis describes it is that the waters of the foundation of the earth burst forth and the skies opened. It's as if the waters above and the waters below are re-emerging and coming back together and flooding the earth. And then we begin to see as the waters dissipate that God again separates the water. And then we see dry land. And dry land emerges and Noah begins to send out birds. And we see the birds of the sky, one of the first animals to be created. And then when the ark rests, he sends out of the ark, exact same language, every creeping thing which crawls upon the earth and that which swarms upon the earth, as we saw in Genesis chapter 1. God is recreating. It's a pattern that we see in God's life, that in God, and what he is doing is that he is a God that creates, and he's a God that rescues, and now he is starting over. He's gone back now just to eight people, and the animals that he rescued, and he's beginning a new process, and we see the exact same language, that the animals are to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And finally, in 9 verse 1, God blesses Noah and his sons and says to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. If we exchange the names there, we can go back and say, where God blessed Adam and Eve and told them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Noah is the second Adam. He is coming now and starting a new line. We can all trace our genealogy back to him. He is the one that God chose, and God began his recreative process. And the first thing that Noah does is to worship. God's rescue leads him to worship and praise and adoration. Eight verse twenty. Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma. It wasn't that the offerings that Noah made just smelled really good, like when you drive past a steakhouse and you can just smell the steak pouring out, and it's a pleasing aroma. The pleasing aroma to God was Noah's faith in his sacrifice. Noah had just walked with God over this course of over a year as the floodwaters prevailed, and he was obedient. Repeatedly it says he did all that God commanded. He did what God had commanded him. And so his worship, his sacrifice was pleasing to God. And then we see, again, that man is still sinful. The flood did not take care of the problem. I'm going to read now, if you want to join along, um, 9 verses 18 through 29. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. 
Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk, and laid uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it on both their shoulders and walked backwards and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backwards and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his, from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants he shall be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years, and all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Again, we see patterns. There's sin that is involving fruit and nakedness. It takes us back to Genesis chapter 3, when they ate of the fruit that they should not, and they became aware of their nakedness, and there was shame. But here, the pattern's a little different, the story's a little bit different. Noah plants a vineyard and gets drunk off of the wine, yet it is not Noah, the one that is condemned in this story, but it is Ham, his son. And in fact, the first word that we hear from Noah, Noah hasn't said a word up until this point. The first word we hear from him is cursed. The first thing that he speaks in our story is cursed be Canaan. So what exactly happened? Because it seems as if Ham stumbled upon his father naked and went and told his brothers, and now Ham's son gets cursed because of it. Doesn't quite seem right. Doesn't quite line up. There's four different views on what's happening here. um, And all of these are plausible. We're not 100% sure because the author is vague. Um, The first is just that, uh, what I explained, that Ham sees his father naked. And in this culture, there is an extreme amount of shame that comes with nakedness, especially the nakedness of a father. And so the fact that he saw and then went and spoke about it to his brothers brought immense dishonor upon his father. The second is that he actually uses his father's inebriated state to try to grab for power. That by going and telling his brothers, what he's really attempting to do is to usurp his father's authority and take control, which is why he is made a servant. The third view is that he committed a shameful, sinful act with his father, If you ever get the chance to read Leviticus 18, it is a disturbing chapter in the Bible because it's all about the different sexual sins and the way that the author describes it is to commit a sexual sin is to uncover the nakedness of someone. And so this view says that what's happening here is that Ham actually commits a heinous sexual act with his father. And then the fourth view Um, is based off of Leviticus 18, where it says, um, whoever uncovers the nakedness of his mother has uncovered the nakedness of his father. And it relates the two together. And so what this view believes happens is that Ham actually goes in, and while Noah was not able to procreate with his wife, Ham went in and procreated with his mother. And the offspring was Canaan. So that is why Canaan is cursed in this view. So these are all different views that are from just 
kind of the literal to the that's really strange. But that last one, to me, makes sense of why Canaan was cursed, if he was the offspring of this illegitimate affair. Um, We're not 100% sure of what happens, but what we know is now sin is again at the forefront. Right before the flood, we saw that man was seeing whomever they saw the daughters of man, whomever they liked, they chose, whomever they were attracted to, they chose and they took them. Without any regard for God, they just went and chose and took. And here, right after the flood, again, we see sinfulness. The flood wiped out mankind, but it did not take care of our sin. And so Noah curses Canaan as a result of this sin. And it might seem unjust that he curses the son, but really what he's cursing is he's cursing the entire line. The reason why this is highlighted, if you noticed, every time Ham's name is mentioned, it says Ham, the father of Canaan. Noah's writing this to a people that are about to enter into the promised land of Israel. And they're about to displace the Canaanites from their land. And so it's important to them to know where these Canaanites come from, in that from Noah, it was foretold that they would be the servants, that they would be the ones that serve. And so Israel is about to enter the promised land and now they understand where these people are coming from. And even as they are preparing to enter, God says that he has been patient and long-suffering with the people of Canaan. But the time of their iniquity was full and it was time for him to drive them out. And so even right away after Noah curses Canaan, generations pass where God continues to allow them to live, and they continue to live in sin. They continue to choose other gods, to worship other gods, to sacrifice children at the altar of Molech, to worship the God of Baal instead of the true God. And ultimately what we see is there's still sin in the world. The flood didn't fix the problem. But there's a truth about God that we're beginning to see. We're beginning to see that God is a God... Um, who works in patterns. That we see, again, his recreation follows the pattern of what he did before. Uh, one of my seminary professors um, said um, that what God has done in the past is a pattern and a promise of what he will continue to do in the future, but he's too creative to do the same thing the same way twice. This is a theme throughout the book of Genesis. We will again see God coming in and stepping in and acting in ways that is representative of his character, of how he has shown that he has worked in the past. But it's never the same way. It's never exactly the same. And this probably rings true in your life. There have been times where God has stepped in and rescued you out of a situation. And then the next time that same situation arises, you expect God to work the exact same way, but he blindsides you and pulls you out a different way. He's always trustworthy. He is always reliable. We can always depend on him. But he is so creative that he works in so many different ways that we can't pin him down like a genie in a bottle and say, if we do steps A, B, and C, then God will do this. Because it's not about cause and effect. It's a relationship. What God has done in the past is a pattern and a promise. And so what we see that God has done in our past serves for us as a pattern and a promise for what he will do in our future. And what we see him doing in scripture serves for us as a pattern and a promise for what he will do again. 
But don't expect it to look the exact same way. So where does this leave us today? Well, if what God has done in the past is a pattern and a promise for what he will do in the future, we see that God is still the judge of sinful man. That as men, mankind, we have continued to rebel against God, and God is still perfectly just in bringing his judgment against mankind. And every person will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And for those whom God did not extend his favor, who did not have faith, eternal judgment awaits. Far worse than the judgment of the flood. We also see that God still rescues his people. The ultimate rescue will come, the ultimate rescue has already come in the form of Jesus. And we will experience it in the final day when we are united with Christ um, in heaven and when we live with him for eternity. And this rescue, it is still by grace through faith. That God still saves, even though we have done nothing to deserve it, and he saves on faith. That if you believe in Jesus, if you confess him with your mouth, that he is Lord, that you will be saved. An incredible promise from God. And then finally, God's rescue still deserves worship. It deserves the worship of us coming here on Sunday and singing and raising hands and praising him for who he is. But far more than that, if you notice that Noah offered up a burnt offering, which is an offering that is consumed in full, he deserves our lives. That Romans 12.1 says that our lives are a living sacrifice to God. And so his rescue of us deserves our lives as full submission to follow him, to walk with him. He's extended the offer, his free grace. He's invited us to come to be in a relationship, to walk with him. Let us worship him as we go. Let us follow the example of Noah and walk by faith and step out where God has called us to step out, even when it makes us uncomfortable or uncertain. Let's truly worship, not just with our words, but with our lives. Let's pray.